This is an ABC podcast. They don't breathe fire, but the head certainly looks like a bit of a dragon's head. They kind of have longish snouts and spiky bits. They are one of the most unusual animals ever. And their body is a little bit like dragons that you see represented in artwork. When you see them under proper lighting especially, the richness and the fineness of colours, burnt orange and the blues and the yellows and just the whole camouflage thing, it's just mind-blowing. People are concerned, rightly concerned, about sea dragons. You know, it's very likely that sea dragons are heavily impacted by climate change, but we just don't know and we don't have the data to answer that question. Of course, that's infuriating. Sea dragons have captured the hearts of scientists, divers and even famous documentary makers. Not surprisingly, they're David Atwood's favourite animal. He's actually said that on a number of occasions. But despite the attraction, we know startlingly little about these creatures. I'm Dr Ann Jones, but in this episode of Off Track, it's Joe Kahn who is chasing dragons. When I was growing up, we had a painting of a leafy sea dragon hanging in the house. And it was a memento from one of my parents' dive trips where they'd seen the sea dragons for the first time. My mum, Sally, told me about her first encounter with one. A long time ago, when you were about to start primary school and your sister was a noisy three-year-old, we went on holiday to Kangaroo Island. And of course, we had to take turns diving because we had to look after you two as well. And I can still picture it. You know, I can picture the dive. It's quite etched in my, my brain. Leafy sea dragons are, are really just so special. And, and they're so big. I, I was expecting something quite small, but it was actually, oh, I can't remember exactly now, but my memories of something that was at least 30 centimetres long. I probably wouldn't have seen it the first time because it was camouflaged in the seaweed. Golden coloured, very elegant, unearthly, and really unlike anything else I've seen underwater. It's quite mesmerising to watch as it floated around unhurried in water that was deep enough to be beyond the swell, but shallow enough so that you could still feel the waves movement. Hidden in the kelp and the other seaweed, they were really cryptic. They're very special animals to anyone who comes across them. And they're just so special in their own right. But until recently, I didn't realise just how special they are. A sea dragon is a fish, (laughs) a really camouflaged, beautiful fish. They're so strange and unique looking that they're not obviously fish for a lot of people. Dr Nerida Wilson is a scientist at the Western Australian Museum. She uses DNA to find out what species something could be and also how different species are related. And she is more of an invertebrate-obsessed type of person, sea slugs, that is. But like so many others, she just can't help but be drawn to the sea dragons. Sea dragons themselves are only found around temperate Australia, and that kind of just blows people's minds. Yeah, um, wow. I think particularly because you might go overseas and see them in an aquarium in Spain or somewhere, but it doesn't mean that they're found there. And so I think that gives people the impression that they're a lot more common than you think. The two species that divers will mostly encounter in would be the weedy sea dragon, and that's the one that is sort of a bit more brown and has fewer leafy appendages on it. 
And then there's also the leafy sea dragon, which is a bit more yellowy and has a lot more leafy bits on it. And that one is found just in Western Australia and South Australia. Okay, so imagine this. Take a seahorse, tilt it forwards so it's nearly horizontal, stretch out its snout and its tail, add some blue stripes, some white dots, and accessorise with a leaf on the top of the head, one on the neck, two on the back like little wings, and a smattering of them along the tail. But underwater, it just looks like a piece of brown seaweed, a piece of seaweed swaying in the current and catching the light that filters down through the water. Certainly very tempting to say, difficult to prove, that this is all about camouflage, and that probably accounted for the fact why I didn't see them for years. Uh, Really, they do look like a piece of drifting kelp, unless you note that it's kelp with a long snout. Professor Dave Booth is a marine ecologist at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's been studying the weedy sea dragons off the New South Wales coast. And he says sea dragon behaviour is just as fascinating as their good looks. Courtship has been recorded a couple of times. It's a short, convoluted, tails-wrapping type affair where eggs are transferred to the male's tail and there's a sticky... um, adhering sort of surface there that they hop on he fertilizes them and then off goes the female and the male has these maybe 50 to 100 of these little pink eggs stuck to its tail until they hatch wouldn't that also be riskier in terms of losing more eggs if they're so exposed yeah it's a good question as far as the animals concerned i'd like all my eggs in a basket so to speak rather than stuck on the outside of my body And, of course, they don't really have the means to defend the eggs. They don't move fast. They can't flick off. They have no no really aggressive posture against a predatory fish or whoever might come and try and steal the eggs. And when you look at the eggs, sometimes you see a few missing. That's usually indicative of predation, but really not that much. So it's a bit enigmatic as to how they do so well with that uh, apparent lack of protection. They must be at the mercy of the winds and the currents all the time. I mean, surely they could like, wake up one morning and just be in a completely different spot. They can move a little bit. They can also drop to the bottom. So when I've watched them, I've actually seen them with a strong current just drifting along, sort of almost helplessly. So if you drop down into the kelp, you're not going to go anywhere and they can cling on very tightly. So, you know, we've found them in places year after year. We've, some animals have been in the same area for up to six years. So we know they've got obviously some ability to stay where they are, but it's not through quick swimming. They have a fairly restricted home range and we, back in the olden days, in the early 2000s, we tried a number of ways because to work this out, you really need to identify an individual. So we tried tagging and that was quite successful and with this method, we showed that the sea dragons might move 50 metres or so. So in general, they don't move very far at all. Now, it's not a territory. A territory, officially speaking, is a defended hatch. And these animals don't do any defending. It's, so it's more like a patch that they hang out in. It's so funny, all of these things, like the lack of locomotion and the eggs on the outside, it really makes you wonder how they seemingly do okay. Well, that's right. And But then again, if you looked at a human, you'd say, well, what a silly design we are. You know, we can't do this and we can't do that, but we use our nouns to get by, I suppose. And, you know, within the context of where they live, I think they do rather well. They, they're, you know, they specialise on the food that's there. They can latch on with their tails a little bit. Their behaviours are such that they keep low and, and that sort of thing. So, so they do well enough, I guess. 
so we might be able to watch them in the wild and make some guesses about parts of their lives. But there's still such a huge gap in our knowledge of these globally unique animals. Dr. Nerida Wilson from the WA Museum had been slowly getting her hands on more and more DNA samples of sea dragons, and she was starting to get a picture of the genetic variation within and between the two species. But then, in 2013, something completely and utterly unexpected happened. When I got interested in looking at the genetics of sea dragon populations, as well as sampling new individuals, we also went to museum collections and and saw what was available there. And then we took on a PhD student and she contacted museums again after some years to say, hey, do you have any new samples we could use in this work? At one point, she sent me an alignment of the DNA, and that's when we put all of the sequences together and look at them visually and see the differences She showed me this alignment and it had all these interesting samples all looking very similar. And then at the bottom there was this one that just looked so different, this sequence, and I thought, oh, no, typical PhD student, she's probably put it in backwards (laughs) or put the, the leafy one in the weedy data set or something strange like that. That PhD student was Josephine Stiller, who's now at the University of Copenhagen, and she had not made a mistake. I looked a little more closely and I could see that some parts did make sense in that DNA sequence and it did match the other ones and I thought this is just really strange. So I um, wrote back to her and said, can you just double check the data on that specimen? Is there anything special or strange that might indicate why the sequence is so different from all the others? And she went back and thought, oh gosh, I'm glad we double checked. I thought it was from this shallow site. And then, in fact, it was from 50 metres. And so that was definitely the deepest record we had for a sea dragon of any species. We decided to then contact again the Western Australian Museum to send an image, see if they had a a photograph of that actual specimen we could look at. And uh, they sent us this image and immediately, it was just like that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this is something else entirely. This is a third species of sea dragon. We were completely capering around and getting very excited because this strange DNA sequence that we'd seen, the photograph, you know, while it looked a bit like a common or weedy sea dragon, it didn't have any of the spots that they normally had. It had stripes more like a leafy sea dragon. And so it was all, you know, just like a combination of the two. We knew that it really had represented a previously undiscovered third species. So we were super pumped. Wow. And I mean, what did it feel like? Because we've just spoken about how there's only two in the entire world and they're only in Australia. And then you've discovered a third one. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, we, we do discover new species quite a lot in invertebrates because they're so much less well known. But in this space where the last sea dragon was kind of described 150 years ago, yeah, we knew this was pretty big. So I have to admit to being a little more excited than usual. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so once you had that realisation, what did you do after that? How do you go about confirming it? Our first step was to try and understand if there were any additional specimens in other museums or collections. And so we went through a process of contacting and asking for images of animals that were either from deep water or just looked maybe a little bit different. So 
we did discover that there would be two specimens in the National Fish Collection in Hobart. And then in the WA Museum, we went through the dried collection and through all of it, there was one specimen of a, a dried ruby sea dragon in there. And that had washed up and come into the museum in 1919. So, you know, this amazing specimen had just sat there waiting for its moment in the sun to be recognised and it was wonderful. Yeah, really exciting. And, and whereabouts was that specimen from? So that specimen had washed up in Cottesloe, which is a really popular beach near Perth. And I guess was popular for beachcombing back then. <laughs> it is special because now uh, Cotsloe Council named a laneway down near where it was collected, Sea Dragon Lane. So it is really a very famous little specimen now. <laughs> Vindication at last. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so at this point, do you know whether the species still exists or not or whether it's actually gone extinct? Once we described the species, the story was picked up by ABC and, and local media and, and people heard about it. And then they were looking with those eyes and with that idea in mind, I might see a ruby sea dragon. And so then they did. And we have had, you know, a number of specimens now found by people washed up on beaches and they contact the museum and say, is this a ruby? <laughs> and did you yourself try and find one in the wild? Yeah, we did, of course. Like, How could you not? <laughs> of, course. of course, exactly. <laughs> so we did go to the place where the fresh specimen had been collected and we got a little remotely operated vehicle, so just like a camera that you can control from the back of a ship. And we went looking in that spot to see if we could find one. And unfortunately, um, you know, we had really bad weather and so the poor little camera couldn't hold itself still. So for the first four days, well, we tried and, and failed. <laughs> and then the final day that we had the ship for, luckily the, the weather calmed down. We were able to go back to the, exactly the right spot. And indeed, we saw two living ruby sea dragons that day and filmed them. So that was super exciting. It was just magic. What did it look like? Well, it looked like a red common sea dragon. <laughs> but, you know, it was interesting that the habitat that it was occupying was quite different. Those shallow ones with those leafy and, you know, camouflage-looking appendages. The ruby, which doesn't have those little flappy bits on it, was living in a sponge garden and it makes sense you know it, it's not trying to camouflage in algae because it lives in a lot deeper environment which are more likely to be hanging out with sponges so it all kind of made sense. Given it took so long to find the new species is it possible that there might be others in other places around the world but that they are in just harder to access places? Never say never. <laughs> we, we don't know what we don't know right so it is possible I would probably predict that they might be in places like New Zealand or South Africa or, you know, somewhere that have been close or where animals could move around in evolutionary times. Um, but, yeah, who knows? We, there's lots of things we don't know in the ocean for sure. Yeah, and you weren't expecting to find a third species here, were you? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> We're in the cool, temperate waters of southern Australia in this episode of Off Track swimming through the kelp or maybe the seagrass with the only three species of sea dragon in the whole world. I'm Jo Khan and both of my parents are immigrants to Australia and when I was just a tiny girl they both saw a sea dragon for the first time. Here's my dad Shant telling me about the first time he saw one. Mm, it was in Kangaroo Island I remember it. Um, in a little little bay 
but you could only get food from the diver's land. He was a farmer as well. We had to drive in an old truck to this little kind of bay. And uh, he had a boat moored there, and we just wasn't very far offshore. I mean, about 10 meters of water, if that, yeah. And we looked around in this seaweed-covered bommie, and I saw uh, this beautiful otherworldly creature, the leafy sea dragon. And uh, I was stunned by its camouflage. It was just fantastic. It was exquisitely designed for its environment. And you wonder how these things evolved to live in such areas and what the evolutionary pressures are to make them look like they do. So that's my abiding memory of them. It's worth reiterating that in the entire world, the only place that these incredible animals, sea dragons, exist is in Australia. But because of their secretive nature and basically powers of invisibility, they're pretty difficult to study. It's certainly a little more difficult than, than work I'd done previously where we might collect the whole animal and then study it in the lab later. We would find a sea dragon and then just clip a little bit of its tissue, like taking a fingernail clipping off those leafy appendages and then do the genetics on that later. But of course that means doing sort of underwater surgery and uh, it's hard to find them. And so we were pretty sure that we weren't going to be able to go on one dive and get all of the samples we needed for that one place. So we knew we'd have to revisit sites. And then that introduced the possibility that we might accidentally resample the same sea dragon and that would kind of ruin the statistics on our work. So we wanted to think about a way that we could make sure that we didn't duplicate samples. And the way we ended up doing that was to just simply take photographs of their faces because we had a hunch that the spot patterns or the stripe patterns that they have on their faces would be unique to an individual. And as we looked, we were able to ascertain that that was true. And in the back of our mind, we thought, yeah, that could probably be a really useful thing down the track for other things. But we were very focused on the genetics at that point. So we kind of let that just settle for a little while uh, and, and tried to finish understanding how those populations were connected genetically first. But that idea of using individual markings of the sea dragons in some way just kept floating in and out of focus like a dragon in the seaweed. The ideas about what we could do if we were able to track individual sea dragons were sort of percolating in the back of our minds. And in the meantime, you know, the technology was changing and improving. We knew that the method would kind of work, but we didn't have the technology to do it. And then we came across a software developer that was producing, you know, a product and a back end that was doing that for other animals, manta rays and humpbacks and things like that. And it really enabled us to scale up because before when I was talking about the you know, when we first discovered this with genetics, we're just comparing a couple of photographs, you know, in a population. But if we're talking about tracking every sea dragon across its whole range, that's a huge, massive amount of comparisons. And it's just not something that the human brain can do that easily. So this software uses computer vision models and pattern recognition to help with that process. And that was a huge step up to be able to start investigating sea dragons and understanding them much better. The first challenge is simply to have the, the vision model 
be able to recognise a sea dragon versus its background habitat. And so not just for human eyes, but also for computers, it was quite hard to, to make that separation because we only, you know, from, for computational effort, you only want them comparing just that little bit of the sea dragon with all of the other little bits of sea dragon images in the database. You have to tell it, this is a left-sided dragon inside this box, and this is the right side of one through this box. And so you sort of manually annotate those images, and it can learn from those. And now that the researchers have an algorithm that they know works, they need pictures to feed the hungry beast. And so Sea Dragon Search was born. But it needed collaboration, and not just among institutions and scientists, but it needed data collection from you, from citizen scientists. To do a project of this scale is, you know, impossible for a a single lab to do. And so Sea Dragon Search really relies on this amazing network of people, both researchers that might work on ecology or different aspects of their behaviour and citizen science groups that are already working in this space and looking out for their own local dragons. So the key part about this project is that we want to be able to compare different geographic areas. So are the populations doing better or worse in cooler environments than, than warmer environments? Or, you know, do they reproduce or live longer or shorter in those different areas? So having that big sort of picture comparison is really critical. There's a whole bunch of really dedicated people all across the range that are helping to make this a success. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a people-power-driven project. The beauty of using images is you can go back in time Professor David Booth again. So when we tag an animal, we can only go forward in time. Now we have sea dragon search, which is a bit more global, so it's not just the east coast or the west coast, and it uses some pretty sophisticated software. It actually uses the patterns on the head and very quickly narrows down to the animal it might be in. The person who uploads data or photos, um, whether it be an amateur photographer or a scientist, can instantly look and see if there's a match if there's not, if it is, it says here's Freddy or Susie or whatever, the sea dragon, and here's where it's been in the past. All of this really builds up our knowledge way beyond what we could ever do as scientists. What's the goal for the data that you get from a project like this? So there's a few basic pieces of data that we need to manage sea dragons effectively. We need to know how many there are. Is the population stable or is it decreasing? It's very helpful to know how much they reproduce and how long they live. All of those key bits of information can be captured by a series of images, which is just amazing because I think people photograph them because they're beautiful and that's fine, but here's an amazing way to actually use those images to help conserve those animals as well. For one thing, the IUCN, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature, they recently downgraded the category for sea dragons from of some concern to little concern, based on really no information, in fact, on the information that they were probably declining, but they couldn't change that. So they're very keen to get more information from us across a wide part of Australia, not just in Sydney or whatever. It's outside the scope of underfunded scientists to do this, but with the help of really good citizen science and divers, I think we can really get a handle and and the IUCN are waiting with bated breath to get this information, I can tell you. Even before I first saw a sea dragon in the wild, I still felt that they were special. My earliest memories of diving 
are just my parents telling me the stories of their dives, and the leafy sea dragon is probably the character that stayed with me the most. I did see a weedy sea dragon for the first time last year. I was diving underneath a pier. It was quite shallow, but there was a huge amount of wave surge, and the visibility was awful. It was about two metres, maybe. So I wasn't optimistic about finding one. But thanks to my dive buddies, Ken and Monica, we saw a lot. And they just take your breath away. And they, and they don't really move. And you can just sit there on the bottom, on the sand, and watch them and take in every little detail in a way that you can't really do with other marine life. Because their instinct is to move away from you. But the sea dragons just stay where they are. Maybe it was because the Australian marine life was just so unusual compared to the murky English waters that my mum and dad learnt to dive in. Or maybe it's just the magic of sea dragons. But for both my parents, seeing those sea dragons was just something that has always stayed with them. That was off-track producer Jo Khan, and thank you to her parents, Sally and Shant, and... Thank you also to diver Peter Barnes for sending us the underwater sound you heard in that show. Now, if you're a diver like Joe or a snorkeler or an ocean swimmer who takes underwater photos, you can get involved in the Sea Dragon Search. Go to seadragonsearch.org to find out how to submit your photos, whether they be old or new. I'll put a link on the off-track website. I'm Ann Jones, and pop it in your diary to meet me back here at the same time next time because I'll be taking you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.